Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, April 17th. In today's news, glitches are preventing $1,200 stimulus checks from reaching millions of Americans. Virus outbreaks are closing meat processing plants. Shortages of beef, pork, and chicken may follow. And bodies are being buried in unmarked mass graves in New York City. But first, the big idea. The Nazis couldn't kill her, but the coronavirus has. Margit Buchhalter Feldman was born in Budapest on June 12, 1929, the same birth date as Anne Frank. If she had not lied about her age to her Nazi captors, the 15-year-old would have been murdered at Auschwitz. In fear of joining her parents and 70 other family members who would die in the gas chambers, the Hungarian teen told the guards she was 18. That got her assigned to forced labor instead of sent to the gas chamber. After she was liberated in 1945, she moved to America. Margit made a life in New Jersey. She was never able to escape the nightmares about the mounds of bodies, and she was never able to get rid of that tattoo on her left arm, the number assigned to her by the Nazis, A23029. She was 90 years old, and she died one day shy of the 75th anniversary of her liberation. Her husband, Harvey, remains hospitalized with COVID-19. Doctors aren't sure he'll make it. But their son, Joseph, is a physician working on the front lines of the fight against the pandemic, and he's doing all he can to save his dad. I start with that story today because it's so important to remember the human dimension of all this. Last night, President Trump released federal guidelines for a slow and staggered return to normal, or something that looks more like normal, in places with minimal cases of the coronavirus. Despite Trump's desire for a May 1 reopening, his plan does not contain a date for implementation and is vague in its recommendations for a three-phased reopening of businesses, schools, and other gathering places in jurisdictions that satisfy broad criteria on symptoms, cases, and hospital loads. The plan effectively reverses Trump's claim earlier this week that he had total authority to declare the nation reopened. The federal guidelines shift accountability to governors and mayors, placing the onus on them to make decisions for their own states based on their own assessments of the spread and risk of resurgence. Trump told the governors on a conference call that it's up to them to call the shots. The White House guidelines are far less detailed than that draft CDC FEMA document that was leaked to us earlier in the week. According to several current and former senior administration officials involved in the response who spoke anonymously to discuss internal deliberations, Trump has decided on this, the buck stops with the state's posture, to shield himself from blame or accountability should there be new outbreaks as states reopen. Governors have said one of the most important factors in making these determinations is testing data. But Trump's plan does not contain a national testing strategy. There is still no national testing strategy. 
Senior administration officials say that although the federal government will try to facilitate access to tests, states and localities will be responsible for developing and administering their own testing programs. Leaders across sectors, from elected officials to business executives to public health experts to the clergy, have all been amplifying warnings this week that the nation is not ready to open because its testing system is woefully inadequate. So far, about 3.3 million Americans have been tested at a rate over the past week of roughly 146,000 people per day. While that is a significant improvement from the early testing stumbles, it is still far short of the millions of tests per day that every expert agrees is needed to begin safely reopening the economy in a nation of 330 million. Trump claimed again during his news conference last night that the United States is the most advanced and robust testing anywhere in the world. But the data shows that's just not true. Other countries, including Germany and South Korea, are testing vastly more people per capita. And the fact that they were able to do so early on helped them contain cases and casualties. Because of the failure of federal leadership here and the lack of a cohesive strategy, a patchwork of programs administered by states is operating with only limited guidance. Federal officials are getting requests from private labs for help obtaining reagents that are necessary to conduct tests. Meanwhile, the American Hospital Association is raising concerns today with the administration about a lack of testing supplies. There's also no single administration official working on testing. Debbie Burks, the White House coordinator of the task force, has been communicating with hospitals and states about their testing protocols. But then Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, has been running point with industry. And they've been sending mixed messages. The government has been unable to compel test manufacturers to dramatically increase the number of tests being produced. And Trump has been unwilling to invoke the Defense Production Act for that purpose. States are also still struggling with acute supply shortages for tests, including the basic stuff like swabs. Washington has not addressed this. The lack of a federal strategy is likely going to end up meaning that wealthier jurisdictions with greater access to supplies and tests are going to be able to reopen first, as opposed to poorer rural areas that actually have the lowest risk. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this terrible week comes to an end. Number one, many Americans woke up Wednesday expecting to find a payment of $1,200 or more from the U.S. government in their bank account. That's what they were told to expect. But instead, they realized nothing had arrived yet or the wrong amount was deposited. Parents of young children are complaining that they did not receive the promised $500 for their dependent children. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has instructed the IRS to get payments out as fast as possible to offset the pain of job losses and shuttered businesses, but numerous glitches by an incompetent government affecting filers who use tax preparers, parents of dependent children, and people with 2019 tax returns that are still being processed. All of this is combining to delay payments, and it's causing mass confusion. A lot of people are unable to get clear answers. Several million people who filed their taxes via H&R Block, TurboTax, and other services were unable to get their payments because the IRS didn't have their direct deposit information on file. A Treasury Department spokesperson, meanwhile, boasted yesterday that the IRS has processed 80 million payments, but that means 70 million people who were eligible for the checks haven't received them yet. Number two, 
there are enough cows, pigs, and chickens to feed us all. But the emerging bottleneck is the vulnerable people who work in the processing plants. The coronavirus has sickened many workers, Latino immigrants especially, and forced slowdowns and closures of several of our country's biggest meat processing plants. This has reduced production by at least 25% and sparked fears of a further round of hoarding. Several large beef packing companies have announced plant closures this week. In fact, two of the seven largest U.S. facilities have the capacity to process 5,000 head of cattle daily are closed because of the contagion. Absenteeism combined with sick employees who've been sidelined and the need to spread out those who are still showing up to work to maintain social distance are all contributing to dramatic production slowdowns. National Beef Packing had to close its Tama, Iowa facility. Cargill shuttered production at its big ground beef and pork processing plant in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and then reduced production at one of Canada's biggest beef packing plants after dozens of workers there became infected. Obviously, we talked earlier this week about the problems at the Smithfield plant in South Dakota. The meat supply chain is particularly vulnerable to the spread of the coronavirus because of a longer-term trend of corporate consolidation. Processing for most of the food we eat has increasingly been done at just a handful of massive plants. In the poultry industry, a sickened workforce is creating a growing imbalance between the number of chickens on farms and the number being processed into meat for sale at stores. For example, one company alone has 2 million chickens on the Delmarva Peninsula, which includes the eastern shore of Maryland and the eastern shore of Virginia and southern Delaware. Those chickens need to be killed where they were raised, but their meat will not make it to market because there aren't enough workers. Dairy farmers, meanwhile, are dumping excess raw milk. The sudden closure of schools and restaurants has thrust dairy farmers into crisis mode. Milk consumed at schools and restaurants, restaurants use milk to make cheese and butter, is suddenly going to waste. A dairy farmer in Indiana yesterday had to dispose of 30,000 gallons of milk in his field because there was nowhere else for it to go. Number three, desolate Heart Island, a mile-long stretch of dirt off the Bronx, has taken New York City's unclaimed dead for 151 years now. Civil War soldiers, stillborn babies, the homeless, and AIDS patients. They were the AIDS patients, that is, were confined to the island's southernmost tip for fear that their little understood virus might spread from their corpses. During this coronavirus pandemic, the mass grave burials of indigent New Yorkers whose families either cannot be found or cannot afford a private funeral have quintupled. As many as 120 bodies are being buried there some days now. Drone videos of Heart Island show fresh trenches being dug with backhoes and people wearing white hazmat suits lifting coffins from forklifts and stacking them in two long rows, three coffins atop one another. The caskets are the same as they've been for decades. Simple pine boxes, unadorned but for a name or unknown, written in permanent marker, and then a grave number carved on the lid. The bodies are unembalmed. The people are often buried with whatever personal effects they had on them when they passed. 
Each plot contains 150 coffins. New York recorded its fewest deaths in 10 days yesterday. That's the good news. The bad news is that means 606 people still died. The state has at least 12,200 COVID-19 deaths. And, and we're hearing so many nightmare stories from the front lines. Some are particularly unsettling. A New York City nurse who had just recovered from a bad case of the coronavirus was on her way back to the hospital so she could get back into the fight to repel this invisible enemy that's invading our country. As she walked to the hospital, she was brutally beaten and robbed by a group of teenagers. But just as this crisis has brought out the worst in a lot of people, whether profiteers or street hoodlums, it's also bringing out the best. For weeks, photos have been circulating online of weary doctors and nurses with ugly marks and bruises on their faces from wearing tight-fitting medical masks while helping coronavirus patients. Quinn Collender, a seventh grader, saw those photos, and he saw a plea from hospitals to create ear guards, devices that help relieve some of the pressure felt by healthcare workers on their ears and faces from the masks. So Quinn, just 13 years old, found a design on the internet and thought he could crank out a few dozen on the 3D printer he received for his birthday last year, and that would be that. But when his mom posted a couple of photos of her son and his ear guard project on her Facebook page, requests came flying in for more. Quinn, who's active in the Boy Scouts, has enlisted fellow scouts to churn him out. They're giving him away for no charge. During a telephone interview, Quinn's mother, Heather, asked him, what do you tell people when they say you're too young to make a difference? Quinn's response was short and sweet. Watch me, he said. Watch me. Quinn, we're watching. The world is watching. And all of us are inspired by your esprit de corps. We will encounter more defeats in this war, but we will not be defeated unless we give up. And we will never give up. That's the Daily 202 for Friday, April 17th. Thank you for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you on Monday.